Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tendies team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tendies offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Manager Meetings. This show is an exploration of investment opportunities. Through conversations with money managers conducted by one of the manager's institutional clients, we'll share the stories and strategies that attracted their attention and capital. You can learn more and join our mailing list at CapitalAllocators.com. All opinions expressed by Ted, guest hosts, and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of capital allocators or their respective firms. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of capital allocators, the firms of guest hosts, or podcast guests may maintain positions in securities or managers discussed on this podcast. On today's manager meeting, Tom Lenahan interviews Bill Ford. Tom was one of the first guests on the show while at Rockefeller University, and earlier this year took over as chief investment officer of the $1.6 billion Wallace Foundation. Bill is chairman and CEO of General Atlantic, a pioneer in growth equity investing founded back in 1980 
by duty-free shoppers entrepreneur Chuck Feeney. Today, General Atlantic manages $53 billion in assets with a globally integrated team operating under a single investment platform. Had the timing worked out differently, Bill quite easily would have slotted right into the roster of private equity masters on capital allocators. Their conversation covers Bill's path to General Atlantic, the key aspects of the firm's global growth equity strategy, and a host of rapid-fire personal and investing questions, including lessons Bill shares from his experience on investment committees. Tom, great to see you. Ted, always a pleasure. So this is a really interesting interview you did with Bill. And I guess there's a couple of questions that I'm curious to ask you about it. And the first is, he was the chair of your investment committee at Rockefeller for a long time. What was the dynamic of having a chair of your investment committee also be one of your managers? So what's interesting is while at Rockefeller, we had put in a conflict of interest policy in place. It was one of the first things we did. And, and to be honest, I think it was one of the best things we ever did so that we could actually not commit or invest in any of our managers or any of our board members' funds. So that included folks like Henry Kravis, like Jim Simons, Sandra Horbach, and of course, Bill Ford. So he was our investment committee chair for many years. Then he became chair of the overall board at Rockefeller University. So we could not invest in General Atlantic. And when I got to Wallace Foundation earlier this year, pleasantly surprised that Wallace had already committed to a General Atlantic fund and they were coming back to market like now. So the dynamic really wasn't there until a couple months ago. It's one of those wonderful things you kind of just walk into it. They're, you know, just pure dumb luck. And I never really knew what GA's numbers were. You know, we never asked and we can never really look at it. So when I started doing the work on GA earlier this year for the 2021 fund, was just pleasantly surprised. I always heard good things, but you never really saw the data and just was kind of blown away at how well they've been able to perform at scale. Most groups, as you know, size is the enemy of returns, and they really have gotten better. I think that's elusive. That does not happen often. That's definitely more the exception than the rule. What were the commonalities and maybe the surprises that you saw when you were doing the diligence, knowing Bill for such a long time, and then seeing what happens inside the organization? Having worked with Bill so long at Rockefeller for just about 10 years, the personality, what you see is what you get. So Bill does not act differently in our committee meetings as he does with an LP, as he does on the other myriad of nonprofits that he serves on. He is the same. And he is one of the best chairs of any committee that I've ever been with. He does an excellent job of facilitating conversation and making sure everybody participates. He'll do the Socratic method and will call people out if they're not participating and, and in a very non-threatening way. But if he knows that somebody has a particular area of expertise in an asset class or a manager or a geography, he will say, hey, blankety blank, feel free to weigh in. Or what, when you had your experiences with this group, what do you think? And just really facilitates a conversation. And at the same time, as a CIO or a deputy CIO, if you needed his support on something, we would always meet with him before the meeting just to make sure that we got our ducks in a row and, and made sure the flow was okay. And if we needed his support on something in particular that might be a little bit sticky, he would weigh in early and kind of set the tone. And other times he wouldn't weigh in. He'd kind of wait to like make sure everybody else had a chance to talk first before giving his own view. That really is an art to do that well and to make sure everybody feels a sense of ownership because on these committees, as you know, Ted, you've sat on a bunch of these. You've been around enough to know which ones function really well and are high performing and which ones kind of stumble a little bit. 
So when you brought that lens to looking at GA, what did you find under the roof? I always kind of thought, rightly or wrongly, that GA was more like a technology firm. And that was clearly where their roots were, primarily in software. But I never really knew much about the consumer piece or the financial services piece and now the healthcare piece. So they are multi-industry sector. They can do everything from seed to early stage venture-ish type deals, all the way to large cap global buyout across the world. And so one of the things I wanted to touch on during my discussion with Bill was, how do you put everything on one common bar to say that looking at an early stage software investment in India, how does that compete with a Rust Belt industrial company in Pittsburgh, as an example? So the only way they can really do it is by delegating. So they do have the investment committee that looks at everything, but before it even gets to the investment committee, it has to bubble its way up through multiple layers of leadership in the organization. And their transition this year from Bill being CEO to also kind of being chair and then adding a lot of co-CEOs and CIOs, it seemed like semantics, kind of effortless, because they kind of have been running the organization that way anyway for a long time to have the next layer of leadership really step up. So that was particularly intriguing to kind of see that happen first time when I did my diligence. So when you go through your due diligence underwriting, how do you think differently about the homework that you'll do in a, call it more decentralized organization than something where if you have one singular leader of the team that's really driving it, you feel like you're underwriting that person? Well, one of the great things about it is unfettered access. You know, During the GA process, you can really ask to speak with anybody. And so it really it's somewhat kind of a random walk. We're, we're not trying to say, okay, let's just dig in deep on any one sector. Let's pick the head of consumer. Let's pick a more mid-level professional in the financial services group. Let's pick somebody out of India. And from there, you know, we don't need to do 50 calls. Sue Carter at Common Fund Capital taught me once upon a time that a handful of really high-performing quality reference calls is way better than doing 50 surface-level ho-hum type calls. So if you just pick your calls and just go, you'll start to see common threads come out. And this is not with every organization. With GA, you could see the culture coming through. You could see the respect for each individual. And everybody, when you talk about their process, how do you guys look at things? How do you source your deal flow? How do you work through your process at GA? Everybody is speaking from the same hymnal. You have a thesis going in that that's a strong culture and that there's a solid process for making decisions. And you really see it at work when everybody is saying the same thing. And that's particularly intriguing. And then when you ask about, well, how do you ask them the same questions you ask Bill, which is how do you think about what's going to go to committee and what's going to meet the bar, how they borrow time and attention from all of their colleagues globally to make sure whoever's got an expertise in something, it's the sun never sets on the GA empire in a sense. They will find the right resources, the right expertise and bring it to bear. That's really difficult in a global organization. And I think it only works well if you start with that culture. And Bill touched on that in our talk. Well, Tom, again, I want to thank you for bringing Bill into the fold. It's a really fun conversation. And here we go. I'd like to welcome Bill Ford. Tom, thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here today. And I think I'll save that introduction for my mother for another time. But no, very kind. But again, I'm delighted to be here and reconnect with a longtime friend and colleague. Fantastic. Well, let's jump right into it, Bill, if you don't mind. How did you first become interested in private equity investing? You've been doing it for the bulk of your career. And then how did you get to GA? Well, I think it's an interesting story. So many things in life are about serendipity and where the road takes you. And I remember coming out of Amherst College and 
I was fortunate enough to secure an analyst position at Morgan Stanley. And for some reason, they decided to initially place me in the capital markets group on the syndicate desk. And one of the responsibilities we had there was to focus on our IPO activity. And all of a sudden, I was exposed to all these exciting high-tech IPOs out of Silicon Valley. And I have to be honest, I'd never ventured west of Pennsylvania during my lifetime before I joined Morgan Stanley. And it really exposed me to venture capital, entrepreneurship, innovation in ways that I had never seen before and with several trips to Silicon Valley. And I think at that moment in time, I said, boy, at some point in my life, if I could be involved in the investing business, like these great venture capitalists building these exciting firms, I'd like to do that. And the time wasn't right, but it stayed in the back of my mind. And Morgan Stanley had a wonderful history. We had been uh, the underwriter for the Apple IPO in 1980. So when I joined the first capital markets and then the tech group, there was such excitement about what was going on in technology. So then I was fortunate, like yourself, to have gone to the Stanford Business School. I followed my dream to go to Silicon Valley and be out west and then returned to Morgan Stanley doing tech banking. And one of my clients was General Atlantic. And General Atlantic at the time was a very small firm with a probably less than $100 million of capital under management and maybe 10 professionals, actually probably less than 10 professionals. They were already a leader in software investing and had made a number of investments in old companies like Gold Systems, Marino Associates, and CompuWare. And then I was the banker who was working on their IPOs and M&A events. And through that, I got to know one of the founders of the firm, Steve Denning, who is now our chairman emeritus and my longtime partner and friend. And we got to talking, and this is about four years into my time at Morgan Stanley. And he said, well, have you ever thought about joining an investment firm? And I thought back to my early days at Morgan Stanley and said, this is pretty exciting. It's really where I want to go. Now, I was 30 years old. I kind of wonder what was I thinking? I was doing well at Morgan Stanley. I was this great firm. I have a nice career ahead of me. And I jumped to a firm that no one had heard of with 10 people, but it was the best decision I ever made because, you know, like I would say to any young person now, follow your dreams because it's what I really wanted to do. And I had a lot of learning to do to figure out how to become an investor, but that's why I arrived here. And, and then I've had Steve Denning, I mentioned, but I have another colleague, Dave Hodgson, who's our vice chairman. And I can only say how amazing it's been to have a professional relationship of that duration with two amazing people, both Stanford Business School graduates, by the way. But it's been a fabulous period for me. Fantastic. That sounds like most folks have a lot more stops on the way <laughs> to the promised land, but you found that relatively early in your career, which yeah. is really fantastic. So let we just maybe pivot to General Atlantic itself. Yeah. You guys have offices in every major geography around the globe. Take us around the world in 80 seconds, if you can, to discuss the current opportunities and challenges in the world today. And from a private equity point of view, what are the opportunities and what are the risks that you see? Yeah, I think one of the most exciting parts of my journey at General Atlantic and in our 41-year history as an investment firm has been the globalization of our business. I mean, we started, we were one geography, one sector, and even a subsector. We were doing just software in the U.S. And what we really did was follow the industry and follow entrepreneurs as the industry globalized. And first Europe, then Asia, then Latin America, and built our businesses there. But it was really about following innovation, following entrepreneurs. Coming up to today, about half of our business is now outside the US, about a third in emerging markets. So we've been pioneering the idea of growth equity in emerging markets. It's been an important part of our success and our future. But as I go around the world, the main theme 
Entrepreneurship is a global phenomenon now. And when I started, it was basically Silicon Valley and Route 128 in Boston and maybe a little bit outside the U.S., but not much. And and now if you look at it, you look at where venture capital is being invested, where unicorns are being created, where great entrepreneurs are. It's global. It's in the U.S. It's in Europe. It's in Israel. It's in Asia. It's now Southeast Asia. It's in Latin America. And it really was us following those innovators and those entrepreneurs around the world. And and there's, well, these countries all have very different risk profiles that need to be understood and very different ways of doing business. There's this common thread that entrepreneurs look very much the same no matter where they come from. They're trying to create a new market, introduce a new product, building, disrupting something that exists or meeting a need that hasn't been met before. That's happening in all those places. So if you drill into it a little bit, China has been an incredibly important geography for us. It's almost 20% of our portfolio. We've got offices in Beijing, Shanghai, and Hong Kong. This is a country that over my career has pivoted from being an economy driven by state-owned enterprises and the public sector, if you will, to private entrepreneurship and the private sector becoming the driving force of the economy. And the people doing that have been private sector business builders, entrepreneurs, and we've been able to capitalize on that. I see their innovation cycle only getting stronger. What they've done in technology is well-known with companies like Alibaba and ByteDance, but now in life sciences. They're actually becoming a real innovator in the life sciences space. We have a very positive view towards the opportunity there. India, we've been in India since 2001, and we've done lots of things there. We've done financial services investing. We invested in the IT services industry or business process outsourcing industry with good success. But the thing that's happening right now in India that's super exciting is we're seeing the emergence of digital India. And we have an investment in a company there called Geo, which is the largest provider of internet access. It's moved India from one of the most expensive providers of wireless internet to consumers to the second cheapest in the world. And so suddenly you have 400 million people connected to the internet, in many cases for the first time. And and that's creating a platform for tremendous innovation of new digital business models. And we have a few great companies, one in the education space, Byjuice, that's really taking advantage of that ubiquitous platform. So um, I'm excited about India and what we're doing there. Latin America, we've been able to tap into entrepreneurship in Brazil and Mexico for a long time. And it's been wonderful to see those countries develop so well. They're volatile places in some ways to do business, but also with tremendous upside. And then most recently, Southeast Asia, which is a people forget the scale of the nine countries in Southeast Asia is pretty large. And uh, as an economy and a population set, and we're seeing a lot of good things happening in Indonesia. And we made our first investment in Vietnam this year. We have a deal we're looking at in the Philippines. What connects them all together is they're all digital businesses and they're typically digital disruptors. We've tapped into that idea pretty much everywhere. The digital digital innovators, digital disruptors are really a, a great way for us to invest in emerging markets. With 360 employees spread across 14 offices throughout the world, all looking at high growth companies across different sectors, different markets. Take me inside one of your investment committee meetings. I've always been amazed at how you can look at everything and then still kind of maintain an incredibly high bar for what makes a GA investment versus what doesn't, even though it's spread across all these different factors. Well, I think it starts with our focus on growth investing. We understand clearly that what drives our investment returns is company and market growth. And so a lot of our evaluation is around how big is the market? Can this company really grow at 25 or 30% during our investment horizon? 
is this product or service one that can really achieve market leadership in its space? We were asking all kinds of those kinds of questions on our investment committee, and they're applicable broadly from a healthcare investment to a technology investment. And we all we say to ourselves, when we get investments wrong, it's typically because we got the growth case wrong. We overestimate the market size or how good the company's product or service was. So in our investment committee, there's a lot of Socratic debate around those issues. And the thing that we have going for us, though, is that our sector and geographic leaders are deep in their area. And while the investment committee has to have some level of expertise, we're counting on our sector and geographic leaders to be navigating geographic risk and geographic issues and being highly local. We're counting on our sector teams to really understand the business models and the sub-themes in their areas, whether it's in the tech space or or the life sciences space, et cetera. And so they're bringing these projects forward. And our control system has been one global central investment committee that evaluates all the opportunities, racks and stacks them, and tries to pick the best risk return opportunities that come at us. And I think we're pretty good at it. And we all, of course, we make mistakes like everybody. But that check and balance, which is sector and geographic teams generating investable opportunities, evaluating them, and then bringing them forward to an investment committee that are pretty well vetted at that point. And then having a very Socratic debate with the investment committee around, does it meet our criteria around growth and are the risks manageable lead to about 25 investments per year that seem to be working? That is fantastic. That is, I got to imagine trying to kind of put something on a common basis, but the think globally, but acting locally approach that's really done well for you guys. We've done that. I think the other thing that we've done well, that that's hard, is we've tried to really keep it one common culture one integrated team. And so I've worked really hard about breaking down silos. So we we don't want to have isolated geographic and sector teams. We want them working together. And in fact, some of our best investments have been when a sector team, like our tech team and our Latin American team, are working together on a tech deal in Sao Paulo. And when they do that, we get great outcomes because we get the best of the industry knowledge and we get the best of the local geography to make good judgments. And so what that requires, though, is everybody being on the same team and wanting to work together and a compensation system and an investment process that brings everybody together. And I think we've managed to do that. It's also more fun, by the way, to work together. And we haven't talked about it, but one of the fun parts of my career, for sure, from a kid from New Jersey, is learning about the world and learning about different cultures and uh, working with colleagues that are from different nationalities. I mean, our our nine-person management committee, I think we have five non-U.S. passport holders of all different countries. And we have French, Bolivian, Indian, and Chinese. So that's pretty fun. So, Bill, so many of your peers in the private equity industry, as they've been successful, they're really good at something. So there's kind of a natural tendency to imagine that you're really good at everything. So they've expanded into other product lines such as public equities or into hedge funds or to other, you know, even venture capital kind of going into mm-hmm. your stage. You guys, for the bulk of GA's history, have stuck pretty close to your knitting and just growth equity. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you've, you've turned it into an incredibly global franchise. When you think about the continued evolution of General Atlantic five and 10 years from now, how do you think about expansion? Do you think that we can just continue to stay in our lane within just growth equity or are there areas that would be natural extensions of your strategy? It's a great question, Tom. But let me talk about it a couple of different ways. Let's start with the touchstones that we go back to as we think about strategy and then 
we'll talk about how our strategy has evolved and I think will evolve. The touchdowns have always been about investment excellence, is to say, only do it if we think we can be very good at it and we can generate the returns our investors expect. Don't expand to expand or don't expand with a coverage strategy where we have to be in credit or real estate. That's just not us. It's about if you can maintain investment excellence and it's a strategic fit, then you could consider it. The second is, is talented culture. This has become something that as I go longer into this, the more I come back to it, that for investment organizations, talent and culture is in some ways the most important thing. If you keep focused on great people and a culture that reinforces your investment values and your investment process and the way you want to work, it really is, it allows a firm to grow and expand successfully. So we, we always come back to those principles, investment excellence and what does it mean for talent and culture. But I think the other thing is we thought about strategy at a level down is we've said at the core, we're equity investors. So when we think about areas like credit and real estate, we have a very successful joint venture in credit with Atlantic Park that we did with Trip Smith out of GSO, and it's been really successful. And it was our first, in many ways, our first foray into a new product. And we did it because we were seeing credit situations in some of our portfolio companies, particularly in the healthcare and consumer space. And so we experimented this. But you know, one thing that it did, it showed that we can stand up a new investment organization and stand up an investment process quite successfully. But it also reminded us we're equity investors at heart. We're not credit people. And so I think any expansion would be around equity investing and building enterprise value, because that's what we really understand. Now, we've expanded that inside our core. If you think about it, we added a life sciences area most recently, before that a consumer area. Those were all new sectors that grew out of our global activity but caused us to build new muscles and new capability. But they were always about growth investing, about equity investing, and enterprise building, which is what we know how to do. So that's what did it together. But now I think we are thinking about other areas that fit those criteria, where we can be a real leader, really have excellent performance, and builds on our global platform, builds on our sector expertise, build on our focus on growth, innovation, and entrepreneurship. And one area we have our eye on right now that we're spending quite a bit of time on is climate, sustainability, and energy transition, because we are starting to see more and more deal flow that in our core sectors like technology that are focused on this very, very important issue. And we're, and we're seeing a lot of a lot of entrepreneurship and a lot of innovation going at the major global problem of climate change and the need to transition the energy sector from carbon-based energy to alternative energy. So that's an example where I think some of our goals might be highly relevant to investing in that area, and it might call for a separate pool of capital. But that's sort of how we think about it. Fantastic. Along the same lines, not to compare you guys with your peers, but a lot of your peers, again, based on their success, they have monetized a portion of their general partnership or the, the management company. When you think about, is that something that GA would ever do? And it kind of ties into succession planning as well. Yeah. A lot of times that yeah. happens when there's a generation that is moving on and wants to take a piece of yeah. economics with them. How do you think about those issues? Well, let's talk about it in two different parts. Let's talk about capital and then let's go to succession separately. But they are, I do agree they are related. But the first first point is that if we were to take capital, I think there would have to be good reason for it. And I think good reason for it is that we need permanent capital to support the growth and success of our business. And then you're in a into a question of, okay, if you're going to take permanent capital because it's needed for your business, how do you do it? Do you do it with a private investment? Do you do it by retaining earnings? Do you do it by going public? There's a whole range of ways to do it. And we are, I would say, fairly frequently asking ourselves, 
are we being disadvantaged by not having more access to permanent capital? And what would it, if we had it, what would we do with it to strengthen our business? The idea of maintaining investment excellence for our investors. And so we check it now. So far, we've concluded that we don't really need it, that we have sufficient capital in the business to grow, to add talent, to add offices like you talked about before, to add sectors. But what we keep asking the question, and I don't think there's a necessarily a right or wrong answer there. It's a matter of just doing it should be aligned with your business strategy and investment strategy and not be something divorced from that. We've had the really, really good fortune of people who have led the firm before me, whose vision was always that General Atlantic was going to be a firm that would exist far into the future and beyond their tenure. And so I'd inherited a tradition of, okay, you receive the mantle of leadership, you lead, you develop the firm, and then you're going to hand it to somebody else. And I've thought that way from the beginning. It's why we elevated three of our most talented people to be co-presidents about a year and a half ago, because we were already thinking in our minds, what's the future generation of leadership look like at General Atlantic? And I also have a pretty well-developed view that I developed with Steve Denning, our person I took over from and who was our chairman, that in investing, and particularly maybe in private equity, but I think beyond private equity, some of these transitions should be fairly long-term. And the reason being is that something like the Wallace Foundation, you entrust your capital to us for a decade realistically. And you need to understand who you're entrusting your capital to. And I don't think it's right for a CEO to walk in the door and say, okay, I'm done on January 1, see you later. These are the guys taking over. And we say, wait a minute, I gave you my wallet for 10 years. There needs to be a chance for the investors to get comfortable with a succession plan and get comfortable with the next generation of leaders first. And that takes time. And so we had a very deliberate plan with Martin Escobari, Gabe Calio and Anton Levy, that it would be a time where they would be in the co-president role, I'd be in the CEO role. At some point, I'll transition to being just chairman, and they'll begin to take over. But during this period, our investors will get to know them as leaders, not just as investors. And our internal organization will get comfortable with them. You know, we're a partnership culture. We're not a command and control industrial corporation. The team has to get comfortable with them as leaders of the organization. So I'm a believer that succession in our sector needs to be pretty well planned, needs to be long term, but you have to work on it. And I think we've seen, I know you've seen many examples of firms in the industry that haven't really planned this well. And I think it starts from a view that if it's a firm that is built around the personality of an individual and sees themselves that way, it's a much harder thing to do. General Atlantic was started as a firm in 1980, was managing the wealth of the family office. And then when we began to institutionalize in 1990, and more in earnest in 2000, at that point in time, we thought about long-term leadership, long-term institutional success, and not just about an individual or a person. That's how we thought about it. You have touched on so many unique elements of General Act's culture, and they're quite consistent with each other, and they all kind of hang together to create the special place that this organization is. I want to ask you about the role of philanthropy and community service as it relates to GA, which can be traced all the way back to Chuck Feeney, you know, the founder yep. and his roots and what he did with his wealth. To me, as an outsider looking in, that has always been a huge part of your fabric. But maybe you could talk about how that guides you in terms of your true north. I'm so glad you asked that question because if you go all the way back to the founding of the firm, and you know, cultures are strong things, right, in general. There were a few things that Chuck Feeney, our, our founding investor, left us with. One was a conviction and belief in entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship making the world a better place. And this is a self-made 
person from New Jersey who went to Cornell on a scholarship and then started a business right after college that built into the duty-free shopper business and produced a significant wealth for him. So a conviction about entrepreneurship and innovation goes back to our roots. The other conviction is philanthropy because Chuck from the beginning had a view that the wealth he was going to generate was going to be used to benefit society at large and the world at large. And that was built into the ethos from the beginning. And he encouraged significant philanthropy among all of us. And and it took a lot of different forms, but the best form, with which led me to Rockefeller and led me to Memorial Sloan Kettering, among other things, was an encouragement to get involved in philanthropy and community service early. I remember having direct conversations with Chuck saying, don't wait till you're 60 years old to go and become a trustee and start to give. Do it early in your career. And so because of that, the firm always made time or really encouraged people at an early age, get involved you know, philanthropically. And it starts more with your time, and then it might move more to your financial resources as well. And so when I look back on it, I went on the board of Rockefeller in 2006, 2007. I was a pretty a relatively young person, and also memorials of Ketting around that same time. And that really goes back all the way back to this philanthropic ethos. And, and of course, you know, Chuck, for those who don't know him, the two-minute story is he really is seen as the father of the giving pledge. This is a person who now in his late 80s has given away almost a little bit over now $9 billion to lots of great causes, lots of great institutions around the world, and has really has sunset his foundation, the Atlantic Philanthropies. That's not for everybody. It's not the right strategy for every foundation or every philanthropist, but it was for Chuck. And I think that he set an example of that kind of philanthropy. And I think he achieved his goal of having an impact on the world during his lifetime. So again, it's built into all of us here. We have our own foundation. We have the General Atlantic Foundation. We take some of our profits and put them in there. And and right now, its main goal is to support the philanthropy of the people at the firm. So as to say, you're getting involved with XYZ institution. We want to encourage that and we'll amplify your philanthropy. And of course, supporting the good work of our investors and, and others. But longer term, we'll think even about broadening that mandate of the foundation to do even more for the community. And then, of course, it goes now all the way back to what we're doing with ESG and building ESG principles into how we invest. And again, it's sort of all traces back to Chuck in 1980. So it's something we care a lot about. I think you spoke about certainly the financial resources and sharing that, which all organizations can use more of. But the time and what you dedicate to that, that to me is where it really hits home. And I was talking to your colleagues earlier this morning that there's so many things that I've learned from you over the years. But one thing is just this idea of balance and how you're able to be involved with so many things. But at least from the outsider looking in again, I don't see you ever have taken on anything where you're not fully engaged in it. And if you don't have the time to be engaged, you wouldn't do it. But when you do, when you're focused on something, you do a deep dive. And that's the most important thing in your life at that moment. And staying that kind of focused approach is incredible. I think very few people in the world have that skill. Can you talk about how you find and maybe work-life balances may be a cliche because maybe it's just all one thing. Maybe there isn't a separate work and separate life yeah. so interwoven with your entire kind of life philosophy, but just how you balance uh, all of these demands on your time. Well, I wish I was doing it more successfully, but <laughs> I think you said a lot of the exact right things, Tom, which is you've got to pick things you really believe in and where you want to make time for it. And I, when I talk to my younger partners, as I encourage them to get about philanthropy, I say, you know, do things you deeply care about so it doesn't feel like a burden when you see that meeting on your calendar, but you say, boy, I'm really excited to go over and do that. It's so complimentary. It's so fun. 
and I feel like I'm making a difference. It should feel that way. And when it does, it's great. And you're willing and able to make time for it. My encouragement there is don't try to do too much, but pick a few things that you really care about and then go deeper and deeper and deeper and maybe even work to chairmanship. We've got some such wonderful examples here. I mean, Steve Denning, when I took over the CEO ship from him, one of the things, the first things he did, because he had the time to do it, was to become head of the board of trustees at Stanford. He had a seven or eight years. He was the head of the board. He led the successful search for their current president, Mark Tesley Levine, who we know from Rockefeller. So I have a bittersweet there a little bit, but, <laughs> but he went deep on that. Another person I mentioned, Dave Hodgson, our vice chairman, was, you know, he was the chairman of the board of Johns Hopkins Medical School and Medical Center and made a huge difference there. And it started with trusteeship and then it evolved to chairmanship and then really making a significant difference. And, and I've said to my partners that that's a wonderful track. Maybe you don't have time to do a chairmanship now early on, but maybe that's something as you get deeper into the mission of the organization, you can apply your skills of leadership because a lot of this stuff translates perfectly. What do we do every day? We're trying to build great enterprises, great boards, great organizations, mission-driven. Well, that applies pretty directly to the philanthropic world too. And so uh, I think we have the ability to make a difference. It's great that we've got so many of our partners involved in so many things. We've one of the board of you know, Hospital for Special Surgery, one of the board of Mount Sinai. I mean, we just... Lincoln Center, Martin's on the board, and one of our partners in Europe getting involved in the Tate, which he cares about. So all this is good stuff. Absolutely. One of the things we hadn't mentioned yet is your work in pulling together and being the chair of the Partnership for New York. And this is kind of a random question, but is there a secular risk having a physical office and personnel located in New York and California, given what we're looking at down the tunnel as it relates to taxes going up? I think part of the debate gets lost in just taxes because I think it's not just taxes. It's what worries me. And I did get a sort of a front row seat on this from working with the partnership for the, I, I've been the, I've been the um, co-chair for the last three years. I'll finish up in December. And what worries me is that the dispersion of policies among states and cities in the country, you have some that are going so much towards the progressive end and so much t- more towards high taxation. And you have other states and cities that aren't. I mean, it used to be much more clustered. And now, I mean, I think certain cities, especially after we've seen what can happen with mobile work in the pandemic, when you have that dispersion, people are going to start making different choices. And my argument to the people in New York, government and political leaders is we need to make this place attractive for people to build businesses and employ people and for people to raise families here. And they have to feel safe. They've got to feel that transportation is accessible, that housing is affordable. They have to feel that otherwise they're going to be able to make choices to move elsewhere. So taxes is one element, but you better have the whole package or we will start to lose employers and we'll start to lose employees. And I don't mean to pick on a city. I'll probably get in trouble for this. But San Francisco has moved so far to the progressive end. They've lost 100,000 residents out of 900,000 people. That's a huge number. We've actually done a lot of research on what happened there to understand it. But there is a real cost to this, ultimately. And we're trying to balance the needs of society with making sure it's attractive for employers. We, across the partnership, didn't find this number remarkable, but our members employ 1.7 million people in New York. It's a big number. And so we want them to keep growing and attracting talent here. And frankly, every one of them, with maybe the exception of Con Edison, who's a member and a valued member, uh, can't really move. Everybody else is mobile. They can build their workforces elsewhere. They're not locked in here. 
So we've been trying to communicate that view in a more fundamental way, but it is a concern. It's a very real concern. It seems to be amazing that G7 may have a better shot of harmonizing tax rates across different countries than we have in the United States across different states. (laughs) Yeah. And we're becoming more divergent, not more convergent, which is where I think the danger starts to really come in. And you sort of encourage behavior with people to move and change. Yeah. And we've already seen it. I mean, certainly with the move to Florida and a lot of New York firms, it's not an experiment. No, it's happening. It's in motion. That's why I mentioned those comments about other places. We're going to, I think, move to more of some just personal questions. And so it was told that nothing is off limits. Oh, I'm using that very liberally. These are the hard questions, but nothing is off limits. (laughs) What is the best piece of feedback or constructive criticism that you've ever gotten from one of your colleagues, if any? Oh, no. There's been plenty. Work-life balance, I've gotten that for sure. Like, make sure you take time to recharge, get a break. I say it and my colleagues say, you say it, but you don't often do it. I'm like, really encourage people to take their vacations, take their time off, go recharge, be with their families. I mean, it's so important. And and for the time you give, you'll be better when you're working because you'll be refreshed and, and have a clear mind. And I give that advice and I was given that advice. I didn't follow it perfectly. I would give it again. I think that's really important. Also, has some outside interests that I think make you more interesting. This was said to me, you know, that, again, takes your mind off your work and the problems that you have, the day-to-day problem. I mean, every business leader, you're solving problems. New problems emerge. They have to be worked on. Find something that pulls your mind away from that. Doesn't matter what it is. It could be boating. It could be golf. It could be tennis. It could be anything. But have something that is a real a life interest or hobby that creates a diversion and becomes something that really engages you. I think that was good advice too. And I would amplify both, make sure there's time to recharge and be with your family and then also have other interests. The other thing I've learned as a leader that I guess I was told by Steve and others is really important to give candid feedback to people. I think especially someone like me, I've got a more affable personality. You don't like to give tough feedback to folks, but the best people want good feedback, tough feedback. They want to know how they can get better. They want to know what their weaknesses are. And I've been so amazed over the years when you do it, how telling people really can adjust and improve and become better professionals. And so I think a lot of people are reluctant to do it because it's not that comfortable and it takes real preparation, real effort, but actually it's really impactful and it's really a better way to lead, even though it's a harder way to lead. So I've worked to get better at that over time. I think I remember John F. Kennedy talking about when he would go on his vacations, rigorous relaxation. He would never be the type of person who would just go somewhere and poop out on the beach, but he would just really like be very active, but get distracted away from his kind of daily routine to help recharge. Exactly. An arduous hiking trip or something like that, but it will pull your mind away. And that's really beneficial. Where is your fortress of solitude? Where do you go when you do need to disconnect? I love skiing and skiing has always been a great way for me to get out into the natural beauty of the mountains and it's something I do with my family and still do. And I've loved that because you're, especially for those of us, I think who live in an urban environment and work in an urban environment, being able to go to places that, you know, there's natural beauty and open spaces. To me, it does open me up in a really great way. The beach is great too, but I think beach mountains, I mean, it sounds like a cliche, but I think again, if you live and work in an urban, intense urban place that operates at a high pace of activity, going to places like that really do have a great way to clear your mind and put things in perspective. And the hardest thing as an investor, leader, thinker is to step back and gain perspective because you're when you're in it, you're in it every day. And and those are the 
places I like to go. Yeah, finding the time to think. Yeah. And just not as opposed to speak so in such in the doing. Yeah. Mode. So this one is going to be very self-serving, which may get the end of the day. But you have worked with some of the best CIOs in the business. And Maritza Geisler, now Letitia Johnson, Amy Falls, Jason Klein. What are some of the key qualities that make an effective CIO? And I'm going to be taking rigorous notes. Oh, here. hey, Tom, you're one of them, too, because you did it at Rockefeller. One, they build great teams around them. This is not a one-man show. There's a tendency to think, oh, my God, there's that all-powerful, all-insightful CIO who has these great ideas about investing. What I've actually seen is them building great teams and great processes and really through the process and the team getting to great decisions. And I learned from my predecessor, Peter Nanasi, at Amherst College on the Steering Investment Committee about it comes down to a couple basic things, manager selection and asset allocation. And those tools are pretty fundamental to everybody. And you're making decisions around those things. And again, I think the best CIOs are ones who say, how do I make really high quality decisions there? Well, they do it by having very strong teams and very strong processes, not by being the absolute genius or investment guru, I think. All of them have done that. It took to my extent, no substitute for hard work. You know that you worked incredibly hard, digging in on a manager, doing your homework, doing your referencing. All of them would do that, and all of them would leave no stone unturned. And I remember, I love, because you've called me so many times for references, and and Letitia's called me for references, and everybody. And the depth of questioning about how they're going into this, a manager that's thinking about allocating capital, I'm like, wow, that's, I'd give them their money, I'd give them my money. <laughs> and so I think there's no substitute for that diligence and hard work when you're a fiduciary managing capital. All of them have been willing to do that, and not just trust their gut, so to speak. I think that's a lot of it, those elements. There was no, by the way, there was no magic formula. I mean, at least I never saw anyone find one along the way that led to it. It was just that combination of people, process, hard work, real diligence. I do think, I want to say one more thing, if I could, Tom. I do think having a great investment committee that partners with the investment staff leads to very, very virtuous outcomes because one, that's a great finding network. It's a great sounding board. If a really capable committee, an engaged committee comes together with the staff, some really great stuff can happen. And, and they can find the right balance of allocating what decisions need to get allocated to the team, which decisions should come up to the committee. And you've been part of it. But when I think when you get that right, in addition to all the things I said about the team and process, you get really good investment outcomes. I couldn't agree more on all those points, but particularly on the last point. There have been folks that I've come across in my career where I've always been amazed at how they sometimes think of their committee as adversarial is probably too strong a word, but yeah. they feel like there's some distance yeah. and, and that they're not really pulling on the same war. And everybody's there for that mission. And, yeah. and they are pulling on the same war and they all want the same things. And so if there's a gap, it's incumbent, I think, on both sides to really create those bridges and that communication Absolutely. so that they're looked at as an ally. Yeah. And, and there's a tremendous power and synergy that comes when, when the committee and the staff are working together for a common goal and really help each other. It's powerful. So I, I think when we get the first part right and then you add a committee that wants to really further the mission of the investment office, it's, it's powerful stuff. Yeah, Absolutely. So I think with the little time left that we have, we're going to move into the lightning round. Okay. So these ones you can spend as much time, oh, wow. time as you want, but it could be kind of one word answers or one sentence answers, but I'll just kind of rattle off some of these. This goes back to the days at Stanford Business School. Yeah. Uh, what's more important, management or markets? 
Oh, gosh. You're asking me a really tough question because I love both. To me, management always makes the difference. Great leaders and great leadership. I like good markets. I like good business models. But at the end of the day, it's the great business leaders that do amazing work. And I've seen as really, I could give you my list of people that just blow my mind on how good they are as leaders. But it just comes down to management and leadership at the end of the day. I mean, I was I could name 10 of them who I just admire deeply when I've watched what they've done as leaders, but I'd bet on management before, before market. You definitely want to have both, but I, I like both. I'm great. <laughs> but I would, in fact, Steve Denning taught me that he always said it's management, market, and model, meaning like business model. That what he always, the three M's always wanted to focus on and, and we wanted to get as much of the three as you could. I mean, hopefully all three, if we're really lucky. Yeah, exactly. He's like, well, let's try to get all three. But usually you wanted to get at least two of the three going your way. But I, for me, management. Fantastic. Inflation, is it transitory or is it lasting where we are today? I do have a comment about this. I think that we have to recognize that this is not a normal business cycle recovery that we're going through. This is a reopening of an economy that was shut down because of something that none of us have ever seen before, a global pandemic. And and coming out of it, you're coming out with tremendous pent-up demand that has been held back. And I think it's going to be natural to have some level of inflation here for a period of quarters. If it was a normal, gradual, cyclical recovery or recovery coming out of a financial crisis, like what you have all experienced, I think it's a very, very different from reopening and boom, the demand comes back. I am not as worried about some big inflation prints here in the next couple of quarters. Now, I will be if in a year from now it's holding up because I think the pent-up demand will be absorbed and dissipate and you'll move back more towards a normalized growth rate in the U.S., something like 2%-ish and a global growth rate of two and a half, three, hopefully three. Then I'd like to see the inflation go back to a more manageable level. And if it didn't, then I'd be raising my hand and saying, I'm worried about this. But right now, I don't think that's... And I think people are mischaracterizing the recovery is the reason why. China. Friend or foe? Strategic competitor. <laughs> I'm pro-China. I'm open about it in the sense that I admire what they've accomplished in the last 34 years. I admire where they're going as a country. They are ambitious, just like the United States is ambitious, and they are a very strong strategic competitor. That doesn't mean we can't find lots of areas to cooperate. We can climate being one of them, but there's a whole bunch of areas where we can work on nuclear proliferation, a whole bunch of things where we have common interests to work together to solve global problems. So coopetition is a word that comes to mind at times. But and I also think that I get a little upset when I see people talking about this enemy or competitor. I mean, very strong strategic competitors when people play in a football game. When you're playing the New England Patriots, you're playing a strong football team. You better be ready to play against them. You better you know, have your game plan ready to go. I think what we need to do is worry more about us and making this country stronger and being a better competitor to China and take them on. I'll bet on our values and our system any day. But if we don't invest in this country and in infrastructure and education and all the things in R&D, that make this country strong and powerful, we might start to lose the competitive game vis-a-vis China. So I I have a more nuanced view about them. And by the way, that doesn't mean we're going to agree on everything on human rights. We have an absolute right to say we don't agree with that. We want you to think about it differently. They may not agree, but that's okay. Competitors cannot agree on everything. The other thing I don't like, and then I'll stop on China, is we need a dialogue. We need to be talking to each other these issues. It's just like any relationships. There's going to be moments of conflict and deep disagreement. 
but you want to be talking about it. You don't want to be sitting in your own room and complaining about it. You want to be engaged in talking and use it lead to a better outcome, even if there are areas of fundamental disagreement, which we do have. So I'm hoping that the Biden administration will move towards more what I call constructive engagement, and, and that will lead to a, a better relationship long term. Cryptocurrencies, are these fads or is this a trend? That's a fun question. We're spending a lot of time on it. I think this is here to stay. I think we're through the early development phase of the industry, or I like to call the Wild West phase. We're ending that and we're starting to see the shape of how crypto and blockchain can potentially have a role in finance and the financial system going forward. And I think that we lose the plot a little bit when we get obsessed with the price of Bitcoin and the cyber currencies. And we miss the fact that this idea of decentralized finance and how even things like digital currencies, digital dollars, digital yuan could potentially transform finance in a very positive way. So I think we're going to see tremendous innovation now, but it's going to move from the Wild West phase to more a phase where it really serves the financial system more effectively. My own bet is that stablecoin is going to be a lot more interesting than crypto because I think that takes out the currency risk and just says, yes, I want to transact in a digital environment, but I want to do it without taking the risk that when I convert it back to the dollar, I get my dollar, I get my euro, I get my yuan. So I think the future will be somewhere around that, but I don't think this is a fad. I don't think this is something that, you know, where it's going to go away next month when Bitcoin goes back to a lower price or anything. I just have one more question in the lightning round. What other career interest would you pursue if you were not in private equity? Oh, that's a hard question. <laughs> I love my job. I don't know. I really like what I do. I like investing. I'll say, answer it slightly differently. I think we're moving into the golden age of biology and biological innovation. We both learned that when we were at Rockefeller together. And I think that's an industry that is going to have such growth, innovation, and impact on the world. If I was a younger person, I would be thinking, well, that'd be an awfully exciting place to get involved with. It really does remind me of technology when I first got exposed to it in the early 80s when, I mean, technology had been around, right? You'd had IBM and Intel, and I mentioned Apple, but it was the very early days of what was going to happen. And I feel the exact same way in the biotech biology space, which is, there's been a lot of important successes already, but we're just at the beginning. I think it's an industry that's going to continue to transform health outcomes around the world and can be a super interesting place. We've made a big commitment to life sciences here at General Atlantic and for that reason. But if I was starting my career, early in my career, I think that'd be an industry I would pick. And because I think when you look at careers, a lot of it, are you in the fast moving stream or the slow moving stream? If I'd gone into the energy industry, that became a tougher place to be, no matter how talented you were. I would probably be trying to do something like that. That's so interesting because you think of the intersection of technology and biology. Yes. How that has really amped up the game for both industries and then taken things to the next level. The fact that we could have viable vaccines in less yeah. than a year to combat a global pandemic is pretty bad. Absolutely, Tom. It's how we got to life sciences. We got there more because we thought what we knew about technology and technology investing, AI, data science, et cetera, was going to become relevant for life sciences. And to your exact words, it was the convergence that made us think we should be in this space. And of course, significant innovation, entrepreneurship, value creation. But I think you're completely right about that. And that's sure what we got there. 
Well, Bill, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a personal pleasure for me to be back in GA's offices where we had many investment committee meetings, but can't thank you enough for all your time. Well, thank you, Tom. It's been a pleasure and great to see you again, as always. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and maybe even piqued your interest to explore further. See you next time. Thank you.